the child doesn't care about your drama, they care about being kept safe. Welcome to episode 9 of the Let's Get Serious podcast. In this episode, we go to the United Kingdom to speak to Dr. Ben Hine, a professor of applied psychology, a researcher, and author who has extensive experience in the areas of family breakdown, divorce, and alienation. I'm very excited to bring this to you as our first professional episode, uh, as opposed to the personal story episodes that I've generally done until now, and hopefully this is the first of many. In this episode, I ask Professor Hine to teach us precisely what parental alienation is, how it works, if it's a real science or a possible hoax, like Flatbush Girl claims. See my last episode. How do we know that it's not just proof that one of the parents is a bad parent? And how can the system be improved? And what can we do as a community to improve it? Um, And besides for his work studying parental alienation, Dr. Hine is a victim of it himself. And he shares his personal story with us as well. So I think you'll find this episode really fascinating and informative. And without further ado, let's play the intro and get right into it. You're listening to the Let's Get Serious podcast. The relationship podcast for from men. Single, married, separated, divorced. There's something here for the whole Hevra. Here's your host, Nathan Gettysburg. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining me on the Let's Get Serious podcast. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Uh, just wondering, just to start with, if you could just share a little bit more about your story. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, basically, I'm a, I'm a child of a high conflict divorce. Um, so my parents uh, separated when I was about four years old. Um, and that separation happened in the context of um, a real kind of growing acrimony within the relationship that was partly fueled by my mother's parents and my maternal grandparents um, that really kind of put a lot of pressure into the relationship. And the actual separation occurred when those grandparents came and took my mum and myself away from the house with all the furniture whilst my dad was at work. And wow. he had, uh, yeah, he had, he had, he, you know, they hadn't had this conversation to say, look, we're going to separate, we're going to get divorced. He left, you know, within the context of a deteriorating relationship, but he left as if it was any other day, came back, everything was gone. I was gone. My mom was gone. And there was a note saying, this is over. Um, you don't, you know, Ben, we're not going to let Ben be part of your life anymore. Um, but please do pay, you know, the child maintenance. Um, and, and how old were you at this time? Gone, uh, four. Oh, yeah. wow. Do you have any memories of this? No, no. And I, you know, I don't know whether that's a symptom of general, uh, you know, childhood memory at that time, or whether there's elements of it that I've purposefully blocked out. I'm not sure. But I, I have memories of living in that house and, and being in that house. But I don't have any memories of kind of that event and various other events that happened Um but yeah, I mean, it was it was a very strained relationship anyway, um, because my a, a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis had been hidden from my mum by those same maternal grandparents. And so my mum got married, had me without knowing that. And then when uh, she started relapsing and experiencing symptoms, they went to the doctor for the first time without those grandparents. And they said, oh, yeah, that'll be the MS. And both my mum and my dad were like, what are you talking about? And then that illness and and uh, especially at the times we didn't know a lot about MS then, it really placed like a huge amount of strain within the relationship, which was exacerbated by those grandparents. So it was, a, it, you know, it was a very strained relationship anyway. But then, you know, the way that the separation then occurred and then there was basically a four year process around negotiating co-parenting or a lack of. Um, that followed to two of those years were outside of the courts and then two years were within the courts and that actually really heavily involved me between six and eight so I was interviewed quite a few times by social workers about where I was where I wanted to live and uh, you know had to experience and deal with a lot of kind of loyalty conflict across that time I was kind of alienated from my dad quite a lot um, through a range of behaviors Um, that sought to kind of disrupt our relationship, even though I still saw him every other weekend, um, the contact and the nature of the contact was disrupted. So yeah, it was it was kind of a really tough time. But actually, for me, a lot of the outcomes of that happened after the custody kind of battle was resolved. When I was eight, I went to live with my dad and my stepmom, he'd remarried. 
Um, and then because of all of the trauma of that process, my dad and my stepmom then were very much kind of like, we're leaving that behind, which was difficult again for me because I still had that side of my family. My mom was getting more and more ill and I had to try and be there for her and support her largely without my dad and my stepmom's kind of help and oversight at that time, which I you know reflect on back on and kind of um, understand in a way. Um, but it was just you know, all of these things basically left this child in the middle that that didn't really have um, a lot of kind of support or stability. Yeah. And then uh, my mum got progressively more ill and she passed away when I was 18. And that, yeah, well, that that process really um, signified what the impact of all of the custody issues had been and the alienation had been, because when she passed away, kind of both parties weren't really there or involved in that process it was just me and me and my mum largely so because of everything that happened because of the acrimony and because of people still not getting along no one was really there when I especially needed them and obviously my mum needed people as well so yeah it was a very tough thing to kind of deal with as an 18 year old and I think it goes to show that you know, what happens when people are getting divorced and sorting these things out really kind of has lingering impacts, especially for the children. But that's kind of my my story in a quick nutshell. Wow. I'm so sorry. That's sounds so horrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I've spent a lot of years kind of unpacking and delving back and I've had a lot of therapy about it and I've spoken to lots of people about it. So I'm in a good, I feel like I'm in a really good place now, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting journey to kind of try and unpack it and understand it and speak with various people. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it has, it's definitely had huge, huge, huge personal lasting impacts um, before sure. we even then start on professional, you know, and why I'm interested in what I'm interested in. So. Sure. It sounds like your entire childhood was defined by this, by this battle. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and just to clarify, it sounds like you were first alienated from your father, but then you went to live with your father and you became alienated from your mother. Did I get that right? Yeah, it was kind of this weird, the, the alienation from my father was very much the kind of intentional, you know, disruption of the, you know, very much parental alienation in its purest sense. Um, what happened after that, when I went to live with my father was more of a kind of an unintentional alienation almost through omission type thing almost through a kind of we're just going to not acknowledge that this person really exists and that you have a need to see them it was kind of very much that we're done with this we want to move on so it was kind of reverse alienation in in that sense um Mm -hmm. so you know everybody ended up losing in that sense um obviously most of all myself as the child in the middle but you know it, it was um very tricky and that's 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 why these cases can be so so difficult to assess and and to kind of look at and understand what's going on because the dynamics are often really complex right i still have so many things to talk about and and i'm I'm still curious about your personal situation but i guess things will things will come out about your experience as we talk because one of the things i i want to get to and i uh, it's one of the as one of the parts I first discovered is your um, your interaction with people who believe that parental alienation is a hoax. And yeah. I just want to talk to you about that now. And I still encounter that even in my, in my own uh, um, community and, and people close to me and yeah. dealing with, you know, guardians and attorneys for the children and things like that. So or can you explain why you think that there are people out there who believe that parental alienation is a hoax, why it doesn't happen and why it can't happen. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's lots of things going on. Um, I think the first is that people just like with any abusive experience, I think it is hard for people to understand something that they haven't lived through. And that, that's common for many forms of abuse. You know, people can't conceptualize what it must be like to you know, suffer from this form of abuse or this form of abuse. So I think there's an element of that. And I think also there's a sensitivity because it is abuse that involves children. So I think people um, have an extra sensitivity that, that, you know, means it would be easier for them if, if they pretended it didn't exist. And those are the, what I would call the more innocent explanations as to why I think people deny its existence, because I, I get that. I mean, I speak to some people about my work and, 
you know some people become really uncomfortable about it um, because it's distressing it's not nice to think about I think there's other things around uh, disbelief that parents can act in certain ways um, again that's either through willful or blissful ignorance around that um, I think you know especially if you have grown up in situations where parents are uh, loving and constructive and even you know there are examples I know plenty of people who've separated very amicably um, people just think you know pe that people aren't capable of that kind of behavior that would that would damage uh, their children in that way or etc so I think again that that's kind of under the uh, the more innocent explanations but I also do think that there are more um, troubling or malicious reasons regarding this topic I think Partly people conflate parental alienation with fathers and believe it's a father's only issue, which is not true at all. Um, all of the research demonstrates mm -hmm. that there's there's no difference in terms of susceptibility or risk um, fundamentally from perpetration or receipt of these behaviours. I think there are situations where men are potentially more vulnerable because in certain cultures, communities, countries, etc., men often overwhelmingly become the non-resident parent and that's that's uh, very typical of what it's like in the UK which means that they are in a position of higher risk from parental alienation but in terms of it being a father's issue I, it's not at all and I've spoken to loads of mothers who have been alienated from their children I get emails from mothers saying that they've been alienated from their children but I think because it's viewed as a father's issues or a father's rights issues uh, whatever that uh, means people find it harder to empathize with I think because we find it harder to empathize with men on their issues and also because it's involving fathers we have lots of historic attitudes around fatherhood and fathers that place them as secondary parents that again allow us to be more dismissive of their experiences when they don't see their children uh, which I think is um, really heartbreaking <laughs> especially as a father myself um, and as someone professionally who has spoken to hundreds of fathers who have been alienated from their children, um, I can say that there is nothing more damaging to an individual, a human, not just a father or a man, but a person to be separated from their children. And I think because of some of those damaging stereotypes around fatherhood and, and being you know, a deadbeat dad or that children, uh, that fathers aren't as interested or involved in their children's lives or don't want to be. I think that can be really damaging in terms of sympathizing with issues when they don't get to see their children. But when you then talk to them and ask them, okay, following separation, why are you suicidal? Why are you having such poor mental health? Why do you drink? Why do you take drugs? It's all, it's all because of lack of contact. So yeah, I, I think, I think there's, I think there's a lot of work to be done on helping people to understand and to educate as to what this phenomenon is, what it truly is, because I think there's also issues around that as well, because people maybe think something is parental alienation when it's not, because there are other reasons for contact uh, refusal. But yeah, I, I think one of the things that upsets me, I think, is my dual role, because I've personally experienced it, but I'm also... A professional and I also look at it from a professional perspective so when I see organizations and bodies you know and we're talking about substantial organizations here you know like the UN for example mm -hmm. um, saying that it's you know it's pseudoscientific it's not a real concept or it's highly disputed blah, blah blah I get professionally affronted because those statements aren't true there's a huge empirical evidence base around parental alienation and what it is and what the impact of it is um, but also personally, to have someone deny or, or erase your lived experience is also really upsetting and damaging as well. So it can be uh, it can be it can be tough. Right. I, I don't think it's that shocking that something false came out of the U.N., but other uh, other organizations out there, certainly even scientific mm -hmm. organizations. But um, I, th I think this is a good time to actually get your um, your description of what parental alienation actually is like if you could just define it and explain how it actually works yeah of course so parental alienation is when a parent which we will call parent a engages in behaviors to disrupt and undermine the relationship between the child and the other parent we'll call them parent b and 
it's really important to delineate parental alienation from other forms of contact refusal because there are times and there are instances where parents so for example if we stick with this parent ab uh, uh, analogy there might be times when a, a parent who's being rejected parent b has engaged in behaviors that might justify that rejection and justify the estrangement so for example if they are um, abusive or uh, you know extremely neglectful for example then a child may reject a relationship with that parent because of that parent's behavior um, and that's not parental alienation because that's because of behaviors on the part of the rejected parent and in that situation there may be times when parent a engages in behaviors to limit the child's contact with that parent or to undermine that relationship but it's from a protective standpoint because of that parent's behavior so again that's not alienation, it's parental gatekeeping or protective parental gatekeeping, whatever we want to call it. Parental alienation is when you have a parent, parent B, who has had a good relationship with the child, um, is not a perfect parent because no such thing exists, but they're a good enough parent. You know, yes, they might, you know, lose their temper once in a while or, you know, get it wrong 20, 30% of the time, but they're a good enough parent. And it's when that relationship with the child that was previously good and healthy and happy is targeted and undermined. And that can be through a variety of, of different behaviors. It's enacted in lots of different ways. Um, and there are lots of manifestations within the child, but that's, that's what we're looking at here is it's when someone is taking a purposeful attack on an otherwise healthy and loving relationship. And it often occurs, although not limited to separation, and divorce and family breakdown, because it's often the kind of way or route to attack the other person is through their relationship with the child. Mm. So that, that, that's, that's what we're kind of looking at. And again, when you hear that, and when I describe that to people and talk about my work, some people have trouble believing it because they are shocked at the behavior. But then again, a lot of people that I speak to are like, oh, I didn't know it had a name, but I'm very familiar with those behaviors or I know someone I you know it's it's very hard to uh actually find someone who doesn't either have direct experience or associated experience with someone else it's just the name I think mm. is maybe the controversial element rather than the behaviors um but um, and, and I, I should I should yeah sorry I should I should mention as part of the earlier point one of the other reasons I think that potentially people are against parental alienation or advocate against it or deny its existence is because as a concept, it has had a problematic past. And I think it's important for current researchers to acknowledge that and to uh, make sure that we're kind of critically aware of that. Um, because some of the work previously in this area was maybe constructed, you know, with a certain agenda, etc. My response to that is always, I'm not really interested in discussing that. Because for me in psychology, for example, that's like saying, okay, we can't believe present day psychology because of Freud and because of his problematic theories because we're so many years down the line. So what I want to deal with is the evidence we have here and now. And the evidence is the PA is real, has a real impact, is clearly defined, so we need to do something about it. Um, but anyway, sorry. Sure. What I'm wondering is, you know, the people, professionals, organizations who say that parental alienation is not real, they will, they will say that a good parent cannot be alienated because there's just simply, they are a good parent. Why would the child not want to have contact with a good parent? Clearly, it's evidence that the parent is not a good parent. The, like, I'm wondering if you could explain how is it possible that a good parent could become alienated? Through, through the behaviours of the targeting parent. Um, because if you, if you think about it, and, and this is one of the issues with determining whether alienation is occurring versus estrangement versus parental gatekeeping, etc., is because actually children's behaviour can be quite confusing. Because fundamentally... A children's evolutionary response is to try and attach to the caregivers in their environment. And what parental alienation is, is doing is it's trying to disrupt and dysregulate that kind of fundamental impulse to attach. So those people are correct in the sense that why would, it, why would a child reject a loving parent? Because actually, yes, the child is programmed to love that parent because evolutionarily they, 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 uh, they want to. What you discount by giving that um, explanation is that the child is also loyal and attached to the alienating parent. And depending on the strength of that relationship, especially if that 
you know, relationship is is uh, enmeshed, for example, and the boundaries are a lot more blurred. Um, it can be very difficult for a child to not adopt and not and to say no to that parent and to their wishes and to what they're feeding them. Because we've got to remember, you know, children are very malleable. They're very moldable. They're very susceptible to um, a whole variety of kind of abusive techniques because of their cognitive development. Um, it's the same with memory. You know, people think, oh, children don't report things unless they've happened. They absolutely do. You can you can quite easily implant a false memory within a child's mind. So I think it, it's right in the sense that it doesn't make sense that a child would reject a loving parent because if you are loving and you provide love and care to a child, they will attach to you. That's attachment theory. What mm. is clear is that you can very purposefully and very effectively target that attachment and basically um, undo and make insecure the model of the parent that the child has. And the reason why reunification therapies can be so effective is because actually it takes very limited exposure then for a child to undo that work, but they've got to have the opportunity to do that. And that's why alienating parents, first and foremost, try and disrupt contact between the parent and the child so that they don't get to experience that love and think, well, actually, what's going on here? But it's, it's, mm. certainly, the, it's certainly not the case that oh, it can't be a real thing because children want to attach to their parents because that was what I experienced. I wanted to attach and, and I had a good attachment to my dad. Um, but when you spend 12 days hearing negative things about that person and you're not having contact with them to remedy that, then you do start, you go in waves, you start to build up this idea that they're maybe not a nice person. And then you go and spend time with them and you think, wait hold on a minute actually they are so hmm. it's it, it and and actually that in and of itself is still effective because it has this sense of just destabilizing you so you don't know what you don't know what's true um and that in and of itself is is a kind of effective tool so it's certainly the case that you can turn a child against a loving parent hmm. for sure that's so it's so frightening as you say it just uh, it's it's so true a child can easily be convinced of anything especially by a loving parent they could be even convinced that the other parent is not loving um yeah. is it is it similar to something like stockholm syndrome if you've never heard of it it makes no sense at all <laughs> like why would why would such a thing yeah. ever happen it can't be real why would someone sympathize with their captors and become part of the mm. group that's you know tormenting them and then you know once you once you uh, agree that such a thing as stockholm syndrome exists it becomes easier to imagine that a young child who can be brainwashed, you know, they're like child soldiers in part of the parts of the world that are completely yeah. brainwashed, uh, you know, and it's just so easy to make mm. a child believe something, especially if you're with them all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, ch children are, because this is, this is the, this is the whole point is that the parent who's alienating is also to that, that child, a trusted figure. Um, and someone they've attached to. So they they kind of, this is why it inspires this loyalty conflict and the difficulties within the child, because they then don't know what's real and who to believe. And then when they end up spending more time with that alienating parent, then they've only got one narrative to believe um, and it becomes their whole narrative. And that's why we see the, the manifestation in the child where they become completely one-sided around um, who's good and who's bad. And it becomes a very black and white um, dichotomy but I think the comparison to Stockholm syndrome is really really interesting because it's hard to say definitively yes it's exactly like that because you know a lot of cases of parental alienation are very diverse very different different strategies different tactics etc but it's certainly the case that there are some personality traits for example so some cluster b personality traits um, you know things like narcissistic personality are linked to the behaviours that are seen in alienating parents. And that a lot of the relationships where you have an alienating parent are actually enmeshed with the child. And enmeshment is when the boundaries have been blurred between the parent's needs and the child's needs. And the child is seen as an extension of the parent rather than an autonomous individual. Um, so that kind of intensity and the bonding and the closeness um, yeah, definitely kind of mirrors that that dynamic. And you've also got to remember that fundamentally there is still a power dynamic at play between a parent and a child because the parent does hold a lot of power um, and it's about how they choose to wield that. So again, 
if you say, well, how on earth could a child be turned against a loving parent? You have got another parent who is also very powerful because they are a parent. You know, I could tell I could tell my son anything and he'd believe it. And that's the responsibility and the power that we have as parents. You know, and some parents use that to their advantage in in slightly less, uh, uh, slightly more innocuous ways. You know, you might say, oh, if you don't do this, then uh, then this monster will come or something like that. I mean, not that I would ever advise doing that. But (laughs) what you what you can do with that power, if you're an alienating parent and if you have. You know, there's loads of theories about why parents engage in these behaviours. But say, for example, you have attachment issues of your own with your parents. So the grandparents in this situation and having a child kind of triggers those within you, it might lead you to use that parental power to make the child yours and to make them love you and to fulfill those emotional needs and to reject the other parent as as a consequence of that. So I think uh, we have tremendous power as parents and that's why this type of abuse can be so effective. Wow. I wanted to ask you specifically, because um, my audience is mostly the Orthodox Jewish community. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you have any specific experience working with the Orthodox Jewish community, because we do unfortunately have a lot of custody battles um, when there are divorces. The divorce rate is lower than the general public, but mm. when it happens, there are more custody battles. And very often it centers around religious issues. And one parent becomes alienated because of Mm. a perceived religious imbalance or they're not religious enough or sometimes one parent Mm. will go off the faith or or reduce their religious observance yeah so um you know i've seen that um up close where it is a very effective alienation tactic because the child is brought up for several years thinking that you know the religious observance is of utmost importance and then when they Mm. see the other parent engaging in behavior that's uh not religious not necessarily bad or anything but just uh you know not observing sabbath mm. or something like that it's mm. easy to, to get them to look down upon that parent so you know that's where i've seen it that's where it's it's so obvious mm. to me that uh, that the phenomenon exists but i'm wondering if you have any specific experience with that or in your research have you come across it um so I don't have specific experience of speaking, for example, to Jewish parents about this phenomenon. But I, as I talk about um, in my book, and as I've been told already, I should talk about in more in the second edition, which I will do, is that there are huge cultural contextual factors at play in any given situation. So, for example, in the scenario you just gave uh, in the Jewish community, for example, around levels of religiosity, it would be very interesting to kind of explore that further because it would be interesting to see how that plays into people's conceptualization of what a good enough parent is. Because if fundamentally your view as parent A, for example, is that in order to be a good parent, you should be raising the child Jewish and the other parent is choosing not to do that, then there there may be within that community or certainly within that individual's mind, the justification to say that that parent isn't a good parent and isn't a good enough parent, and which is why in particular contexts, in many contexts, in fact, establishing parental alienation is very difficult because one man's parental alienation is another person's protective parental gatekeeping. Um, so that that's what I would say on that. I mean, one of the allegories that I would draw is um, I, I'm a part of a project at the moment working with Muslim and Southeast, Southeast Asian men in the UK at the moment. And I was speaking with uh, a a man who runs a forum for alienated fathers within this community. And he said something to me that blew my mind because as a white male, I had not even considered it. And he said around in custody battles, there can be accusations of terrorism that are used against the father to say they're not safe because they're engaged in terrorist activities. Now, if you are a white father going to court, you wouldn't even expect that to come up. But to that community, that is a tool that can then be used to undermine that position as a good enough parent and as someone who is going to safely be involved in the child's life. So there are allegories Mm -hmm. there in terms of the community, the culture and the religiosity based factors that can influence alienation. Um, And I think it would be really interesting and something I want to do in the future. And I'm doing with Muslim men at the moment is to kind of explore what those might be. And I want to explore it more in the second edition of, of my book in the next few years. Wow, that's fascinating. So basically, they're 
the the in the custody battle, I guess the opposing side is sort of playing up on the yeah. the judges pre-existing uh, well, bias. Who are judges? Who are judges in the UK? They're all middle-aged white men. So you're playing into stereotypes, biases. And, you know, if you strip out all of those extra factors, that happens in the courts all the time, just towards fathers in general, because a lot of the stereotypes that are dragged up and brought up in battles around this. Um, and I, I, need, I, need, I speak more about fathers because that's what we're talking about at the moment, but it can happen both ways. But particularly within our family court system, for example, in, in England and Wales, there are lots of residual stereotypes that can be very effective used against fathers because they're still kind of positioned as secondary parents. They're often the non-resident parent. And generally as a society, globally, I think we, we deposition fathers as caregivers and as, as primary caregivers. So there are, basically there are attitudes and stereotypes aplenty to play on if you so wish. And, and that counts for mothers as well if, if you're in the kind of reverse dynamic. Um, but then when you start layering on top of that, other other stereotypes, for example, of Muslim men, that they are all terrorists and bombers, etc. And you go into mm. a court and you say, yeah, they're a part of a terrorist cell or they're on these dangerous forums or I've, pre- I've reported them to prevent, which is a, a kind of a safeguarding strategy in the UK where you can report someone, you know, that could play really heavily. Um, so, it, it, yeah, mm. it, it, there's definitely lots of different types of tactics that can be used. And just to very quickly touch upon other contextual things, look at COVID. Um, I did a study with a with a student on um, parents' experiences of parental alienation during COVID because for lots of alienating parents, COVID was a golden ticket that came along as an excuse to alienate their children from parent B because you had either parents that were already being difficult and then got handed basically the best explanation ever because, you, I mean, why... When when a catastrophe comes along that limits movement of people, I mean, absolute dream ticket for an alienating parent because you can say, well, look, it's too risky, it's too high risk. You know, and there were loads of layers to that. It was like who was a key worker and who was not. I had someone who said, well, because their partner, because they worked in uh, an essential service, so they were seeing people regularly, the alienating parent said, well, you're too high risk because of your job. You know, even though there was legislation brought in to say contact arrangement orders should be upheld, it was a huge issue across the country with people denying contact based on this kind of pseudo reason of safety and and uh, and health. Um, well, and I, I don't know. Were, at the time, well, at the time, I would say it's hard to know because that that is legitimate. Like it, it, at the time, yeah, if it's highly contagious and and the other parent is uh, working in the uh, as a nurse or then I think there is a legitimate reason. I mean, now we know it wasn't as dangerous as initially presented, but at the time. Yeah, I think, I think that's, I think that's certainly true. I think what the difficulty comes is that now the courts are completely clogged and we had people who haven't resumed basically contact arrangements. That's one of the issues that we're seeing. So, okay. I I grant, grant you that maybe, so if take the UK timeline, we locked down March, 2020, um, which now feels like, a lifetime ago but we locked down in March 2020 and the first kind of restrictions were eased by kind of June July in the summer um and that's when typically you would have started to have seen contact arrangements resumed even if you were the most kind of hyper conscious person there is there's lots of reasonable um kind of uh mm-hmm. registra- regulations that were in place to allow contact to resume what we were seeing is that way past that point and even to the present day contact disruptions that occurred because of COVID are still going on now when they don't need to be um, because the courts are completely jammed because of all of the different applications. And, you know, not only that, COVID then gave rise to a whole new wave of divorce, for example, because people were locked in their houses together and realised they didn't really like each other that much. So they started getting divorced. So all the courts and all the systems, you know, we see it with the health service. We see it with all these other systems are completely round and clogged. And the, the difficulty is, is you had parents who, you know, were, were kind of getting it done, maybe weren't happy about it, but they had 50-50 arrangements before COVID hit. And you've got parents who are still not out of that now. They, they're still uh, not, not having any access to their children. So I think you know, context, specific cultural elements or religious elements, everything can kind of play into an assessment about how this alienation is being carried out and how effective it is as well. Mm. In what you see out there in terms of uh, 
what what effect do laws play on like do custody laws play on whether or not alienation happens or is it rampant or if there's a high rate what kind of custody laws encourage alienation and what kind of laws prevent it and what would you suggest i would say the single most important factor is whether there is legislation around a presumption of shared care so in Scandinavia, in many of the Scandinavian countries in, in which I have colleagues that I've spoken to, particularly places like Finland, Norway, um, but also in a number of US states, um, I know Kentucky particularly is an example, where if you have a presumption of shared care, so this is a presumption that when you separate, there will be 50-50, unless someone petitions otherwise because of some risk there is a huge decrease in the amount of people going to family court, which I take as an indication of alienation occurring. Um, because I think if you fundamentally, societally, culturally, you know, as a, as a kind of uh, agreed communal understanding as a culture that when parents separate, their spousal role has ended, but their parental role has not, and that you have to maintain that, and in the best interest of the child, you should try and maintain that equally. Because the child, and this is what I always say, the child, the child doesn't care about your drama. The child cares about being loved. And if they have formed a healthy attachment with both parents before the separation, they are entitled to those attachments after the separation. That's the bottom line. And if you are doing anything to purposefully disrupt a healthy attachment, then you are abusing that child. That's that's the fundamentals of it. So when you have legislation in place which translates to this cultural understanding that when people separate, they they do it amicably as they can, they engage in 50-50. And this varies hugely on things like socioeconomic status. It's much easier to do 50-50 shared care if you're well off. But if you try as much as possible to maintain split care, um, it will be better for the child and there is much less likelihood of abuse because there is a much, much lower percentage of people going to family court in places like Finland and Norway and Kentucky because of these laws. And my guess is that if you're staying out of family court, then you're probably not alienating your children either. So I think that for me, and that's what I've said in my work, and I will continue to say in my advocacy over the next however long it takes, especially in the UK, the single biggest benefit that you can introduce to help safeguard children and parents after separation is a rebuttal presumption of 50-50 shared care. And that means that you have 50-50 shared care post-separation unless someone puts in an order otherwise. Because the problem at the moment is that in, in, the, in the England, for example, is that parents are left to fend for themselves unless they go to court. So you either figure it out or you have to go to court to determine it. And those aren't good options. So what happens is, is that because you're left to figure it out, often because of a lot of these societal norms, stereotypes, exactly, the father will move out, they'll get less time. Then the only way for them to kind of remedy that legally is to put in a petition. Whereas if you've got a presumption of 50-50 as a starting point, sure, you can agree something different. It's not, it's not mandating 50-50, but it's saying that's your starting point legally. So you can then arrange something else if you want to. That's a much better framework than saying, no, no guidance at all. Work it out amongst yourselves. Because I don't know whether you've ever tried to get to divorcing people sat in a room and talking about things, but it's impossible to do things after the fact when people are in a space where they're not very happy and they are damaged and they are upset. So if you have a presumption ahead of time and that operates just as a baseline, that's the most effective thing we can do it's it's really i mean it's really that simple i would people ask me this question and i think they expect a kind of 20 point plan of how we do this or how we do that i mean from all of the work that i have seen and done myself that's what we need yes it can then be supported and complemented by state-sponsored services that help people when they're separating so for example in finland they have a state-sponsored and paid-for mediation service. So if you are separating, you can book free sessions with a mediator who will go through any issues and, and help you through that process. And you can support it with digital resources. I'm in a project at the moment which is looking to design an app for separating parents to help them with various issues. You can provide um, triage in the community, you know, family hubs. You can do all of that. But fundamentally, if we don't have a cultural 
change and a cultural impetus that both parents should be involved post-separation, then in high likelihood, both parents won't be involved post-separation. Okay, so it's pretty clear, basically, that parental alienation is highly correlated with an adversarial custody battle situation. And when you take that away, you're saying that there's a huge decrease in, in parental alienation. So it sounds like what's really at the heart of it is basically a battle that each side wants to win to mm. get the child. Is it is it financially motivated? Is it like uh, sort of a status that they want to do? They want to post on social media. I won custody. Like what's the what's at the root of it? Oh, all, all sorts. And again, this is what makes it very difficult. Just to be clear, and I always like to be clear on this because some people have, have said, oh, do you mean this? So parental alienation absolutely exists outside of the court system, 100%. My point that I'm making is that if it is present or if the beginnings of it are present, it is always made a hell of a lot worse when people get into the court system. And I don't know if anybody has, uh, if you or if anyone listening has seen um, A Marriage Story, which is the, the a film that came out a couple of years ago with Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, because that is a really accurate depiction of, you know, a divorcing couple who initially are trying to do things amicably. It's painful and it's difficult, but they're trying. And then as soon as the, the lawyers get involved, it just blows up. And I think that is a very common phenomenon because the legal system is designed to be a battle it's designed to have a winner and a loser it's designed to to and lawyers definitely pitch it that way i find so parental alienation exists outside of the court system and there will always be some people who need the court system for whatever reason but i think if we can keep people out of the court system as much as possible get them support they need we're going to have a lot lower incidence of it and that's because of where parental alienation stems from so like you've mentioned, yes, sometimes there are financial incentives um, in terms of child maintenance, which can be really, really motivating and, and driving. Again, if you have a legal 50-50 responsibility, that means you also have a financial 50-50 responsibility. So again, that is kind of taken mm. care of by that legislation. Not necessarily. I know of many jurisdictions, especially in the US, where even 50-50, mm. uh, the, the, the higher earning parent will still have to pay the lower earning parent which is a bizarre law mm. because it then encourages uh, a race to the bottom. Each side will just yeah, try to yeah, lower yeah. their income. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, again, maybe that's a nuance that needs to be figured out. But I mean, I know that, for example, in our statutes, we have the term parental responsibility refers around the finances. So if you then tie parental responsibility to the amount of time that you have with the child, then you can tie it to it financially. So again, maybe that needs to be, be paired. But the important thing to remember about parental alienation is around the psychological underpinning of parental alienation, because a lot of the time it stems from the individual's own attachment trauma, perhaps, and attachment issues with their own parents. So there might be a psychological drive there that has nothing to do with, with money. It could be uh, down to, you know, the nature of the, the separation. And there are other factors, you know, emotional factors uh, such as, you know, hurt and anger, revenge, etc., that come into things, and also personality right. typology. So there can be a, a huge drive from the alienating parent to, to enact these behaviours that sometimes require, you know, a lot of assistance, which at the moment we, we don't give to separating couples, especially in, in the UK. We, we just don't mm -hmm. give any assistance. They're left to kind of figure it out by themselves. And and fight, um, if you basically. have and fight yeah and if yeah. you have hurt people it's it's that phrase hurt people hurt people so if you have people who are hurting they're going to hurt others so i think we need a solution that tackles things at a lot of different levels it must start with the legislation but then yeah i would always say it needs to be backed up by support and this and lots of different things like the app we're developing etc mm -hmm. because it is very difficult i mean you're leaving leaving very wounded people to try and figure out these really complex and triggering arrangements um so yeah i mean we're not doing enough and for men particularly from what i've seen it then leads them to be so much more susceptible to mental health issues because men are men are around 11 times more likely to engage in suicidal ideation following divorce and that's sure. because of stereotypes around masculinity lack of help seeking lack of, lack of support and the fact that they're usually the non-resident parent 
Yeah, as you said, I know firsthand just the 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 loss of your children. You know, even though they're yeah. alive and well, the anguish, the emotional anguish, is so devastating. And a lot of people don't realize that men have that. That men do feel a no, loss. They don't. Uh, it's, and it's deep. It's it's so. Yeah. I mean, it's primal. It's I I can only describe it from how I would feel and the men that I have spoken to, how they described feeling. I mean, it's there's no. From their description, you know, there is no greater loss. There is no lower depth of mm-hmm. that feeling that they could experience. Because as one, the, my, my um, I, I struggle to say favorite quote because that frames it wrong. But <laughs> the, the, the most powerful, sorry, the most powerful quote from my study was, if you can't be a father, what is left? Mm-hmm. And so they, they said, that was them su- surmising that it's, their most important role they play in their life and it's the thing that's the most important to them and if they can't do that what's the point and this was a a client who had uh, a participant sorry who had spoken very openly about how that had then led him to suicide ideation etc um it's really really deep and really really profound when you actually speak to these individuals and i think you know we are conditioned societally we are i mean we're conditioned away from empathy in general i think because of you know our news consumption etc and things like that we we are desensitized mm-hmm. to to empathy in general but i think because of a lot of the narratives that we have had and do have around men and issues concerning men and the way men are and the way men should be we find it really really difficult to empathize with or even acknowledge that they have certain struggles needs etc um and that's no more the case than when we look at men as fathers wow one other big question i think i think mm-hmm. we could hopefully squeeze in i'm wondering if you have any thoughts about what an outsider could do if they see what they think is a case of parental alienation their neighbor or their friend and they see that that it looks like the child is being alienated is there anything or a teacher in school perhaps Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you think that they can do to help? Is it, would it help to, does, I don't know, should they get involved in some way? Should they talk to the child about their other parent or ask them why they don't see them? Is there any kind of communal pressure you think that people could put on alienating parents if it's obvious that I that's think, what's going on? Yeah, I, I think it's very, very difficult because you don't know the motivation behind the alienating behavior. It's very difficult to establish through, particularly through one party, whether it's alienation, whether it's gatekeeping, et cetera, because also you have to understand that sometimes the alienating parent doesn't understand necessarily what they're doing or they believe a different version of reality to the one that exists. So I think it's quite hard to directly, personally, I think it's quite hard to directly intervene because, you know, from my own experience of speaking to the people involved, Um, But also from other observers, you know, everybody, for example, in my custody dispute believed with their whole heart and mind that they were doing the right thing. Um, And it would have been very hard to challenge those beliefs. And actually, for some members of that family still today, it's hard to challenge those beliefs that they were doing the right thing and that they still believe certain things about my dad, for example. So I think it's actually quite hard to directly intervene. I think it's, for example, for services to take kind of the lead on and the initiative on and I think if you're a teacher or even an individual and you think something like that is happening then you know that is you know what child support agencies are are for but and people think that might be you know a a dramatic response but fundamentally you know this is a this is a form of psychological manipulation and abuse to the child so if you really are convinced I would apply the same thresholds as if you think a child is being physically abused you know, whenever you hit that threshold that you think there is damage to the child being done, then you need to alert the relevant kind of service and, and authority. I think much more importantly, as individuals within a society, we need to all contribute to this idea around what post-separation parenting looks like. Because I think actually the cultural and societal belief around that is what's going to be the most powerful driver. Because if people have an expectation that you co-parent, after you separate and you do so amicably, even if you despise the other person, you do it in the best interest of the child, then that pressure is really powerful. Because I think at the moment, we normalize divorce and separation as a very bitter, horrible thing. 
So I think what that does is it allows for these behaviors to flourish and to be normalized. Because if you see someone bad mouthing their ex in front of the children, I don't think actually many people would chastise that at the moment, whereas we should, Mm -hmm. because you definitely shouldn't be doing that in front of your child because it's not appropriate. Um, But I don't think a lot of people would challenge that. So that I think is the most important thing is to same same as the conversations we've had around changing societal conceptualizations of abuse. If you think someone's being abused, you should reach out mm-hmm. to them. You should you should help. And I think it's the same kind of thing. If you think someone is, and, and I guess maybe that is a way to directly intervene, is that if you see someone, parent A, who is bad mouthing around their children, challenge that behavior. Say, mm, is it you know maybe we you know we can talk about this. Maybe we shouldn't talk about it in front of the child. You know all those kind of mm-hmm. things because that will help demonstrate to the parent that even if they believe it and they're really angry and they're upset it should it should be separated from the child as much as possible but again that that depends on the context should we also chastise or at least make it part of acceptable conversation to say to a parent you know he he only goes to his dad on the weekends like why why is that can you explain Mm -hmm. like why does he only see his dad every other weekend is that appropriate like do you think that kind of as a culture we need to make it awkward and 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 bizarre that mm. the child's only seeing it, by just asking about it does that mm. slowly create this i think yeah i think it's difficult again because everybody's situations are different because some people could have an 80 20 or a 90 10 arrangement um that works for them and that they've agreed upon so i think then it can be a really you know inappropriate line of questioning so mm. i think this is why again i would say it's quite difficult to kind of directly challenge and intervene but, but it depends on the behavior. Um, I think challenging people's setups is maybe not the right way to go. But if you hear them bad mouthing the other parent in front of the child, that's the sort of thing you can challenge. And again, I would say the most important thing that we can do is advocate for a kind of more broader social change of how we view co-parenting roles. If you center your view with the view of the child, it becomes a lot easier to understand. Because if you put yourself in the child's mm-hmm. shoes... And that child has been told and been brought up to believe in a world where these two people will keep them safe. There is no reason if they have been keeping them safe and they're fulfilling that role, there's no reason that should end after separation. And that's the child's point of view. So whether they have done something spousally that ends the spousal relationship and the spousal relationship is strained and are no longer existent, it doesn't matter because the child doesn't care about that. The child doesn't care about your drama. They care about being kept safe. And that's an evolutionary drive. So parental roles continue, spousal roles end. Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess we'll stop it there. I really appreciate it, Professor. Thank you so much for providing all of this uh, interesting insight. Good luck on your continuing research. Thank you for all your contributions and everything you put out there. Thank you. And if anybody wants to, everything I've said is contained in the book and a lot more. So it's just called Parental Alienation, a contemporary guide for parents, practitioners and policymakers. If you just search for Parental Alienation, Ben Hyon on Amazon, it should come up. But there's a lot more in there. And there's also a lot of kind of practical advice for different groups of people, including parents in there. So, um, yeah, if anybody fancies having a look at that, that would be great. Awesome. Of course, I'm going to put all that in the show notes, all the links. Real. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to the Let's Get Serious podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Help us reach more men in our community and help them navigate their relationships and build the best lives for themselves and their loved ones.